Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. In the space of one week, there are three court verdicts about race and racism in the U.S., including in the case that jump-started last year's massive uprising against racism. The spirit of a mind defeated the lynch mob. The spirit of a mind defeated the lynch mob. And journalist John Jeter helps us unpack the latest in dismal corporate media coverage here at home and abroad. And just in time to counter the mobs in denial about systemic racism, Native Americans provide a tutorial on their National Day of Mourning, known to us as Thanksgiving. Here is the truth. First, the pilgrims are glorified and mythologized because the circumstances of the first English colony in North America, Jamestown, were too ugly to hold up as an effective national myth. No school seems to want to teach kids about settler cannibalism. Pilgrims and Indians are a much more marketable story. All that coming up on today's show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And we're starting today's show hearing the press conference held outside the Georgia courthouse on the afternoon of Wednesday, November 24th, when three men, Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and William Bryan, were found guilty of murdering Ahmad Arbery as he jogged near Brunswick, Georgia on February 23rd, 2020. It took 74 days for there to be arrests in the case. This coverage begins with the uh, attorney Lee Merritt speaking. You all don't want to hear from me right now. You want to hear from the family of Ahmad Arbery, as we all do. We want to wrap our arms around them. Yes. Uh, the only reason that I'm speaking is to provide an introduction for a praying mother. You all have known her now for the last 18 months. 18 months ago, when she learned about the murder of her son, they told her that she would just have to deal with it alone. They told her that there will be no arrest, that there will be no accountability, that there will be no justice. And she made her son a promise before she laid him in the ground, that her mom, his mom, would fight for justice for him. In order to do that, Glenn County had to change. She couldn't find justice in the Glenn County that she found in the year 2000. That's right. On February 23rd, there was a, a prosecutor standing in her way, Jackie Johnson. Wanda Cooper prayed her out of the way, out of office, and she's facing criminal charges herself. When she was looking for justice in Glenn County, she was faced with a corrupt legal system, one that never fully investigated her son's murder, as we learned during the course of this trial. Wanda performed her own investigation. Wanda hired her own attorneys, and she woke up a nation. Amen. Can you all join me in just giving a round of applause for this fighting, yeah. faithful, frank mother? Early in, I never saw, I, to tell you the truth, I never saw this day 
back in 2020. Mm -hmm. I never thought this day would come. But God is good. Yes, he is. And I just want to tell everybody, thank you. Thank you for those who marched. Those who, who prayed, most of all, the, the ones who prayed. Yes, Lord. Yes. Thank you, God. Yes, Lord. Thank you. And now, now, Quez, which I, which you know him as Ahmad, I know him as Quez. Yes. He will now rest in peace. Yes. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Amen. You all. Heard the good wrenching grunt. Oh my goodness. That came out of Marcus Aubrey when they pronounced Travis McMichael guilty. He could not contain it any further. Because think about how long he and Wanda have been enduring all the innuendo. All the allegations, all the character assassinations, long legs with dirty toenails. Woo! Just imagine all they went through. That when he heard that, Reverend Al, he could not contain himself because Marcus as a father. Yes. They see their job as to protect their children. That's right. Yeah. right. And That's right. You can experience the pain of a mother and a father who witnessed what they witnessed not being there to protect their child. Yes. Every parent in America can take solace yes. in knowing that we have an example yes. of how to deal with tragedy and grief yes. when they look at the example of Marcus Aubrey yes. and Wanda Cooper, yes. and we should applaud them. All right. They should be applauded. And I tell, I tell you all, lawyers, prosecutors, we did this together. We said, America, we will make us better than what we saw in that video. And I would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge even though we are clapping and we are cheering and we applaud Wanda and Marcus still are devastated yes. because they're missing a mod. Yes. That's right. That's devastated. That's right. That's and right. so even though this is not a celebration, no. it is a reflection right. to acknowledge that the spirit of a mod yes. defeated the lynch mob. Yes. The spirit of a mod yes. defeated the lynch yes. mob. Yes. The spirit of a mod defeated the lynch mob. Yes. Marcus Aubrey. Number one, yes. I want to give all glory to God. Yes. Because that's who made all this possible. Yes, it is. Number two, I want to thank his mama. Yes. yes. I want to thank my sister brothers. I want to thank my children for being strong through this rough time. Yes. Because I know it was hard what they had to deal with. Yes. And number two, I want to thank all y'all people, all the support y'all gave us. Because yes. one of our team did this. There you go. Yes. Ain't no one side did this. That's right. God put us all together. To yes, it did. 
say, as I said to all of the activists, the family thank them. We thank a lot of those that were local. Yes. Reverend Baker. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who stood up even when other clergy wouldn't stand up. This pastor stood with the family. We want to thank Barbara Einwein. And been here from the beginning. All of the ministers that came last Thursday. Cliff. We want to thank Cliff, <laughs> who's been a rock and And I want to thank, if he's watching, Reverend Jesse Jackson, who, despite his illness, came down and sat in that courtroom. And all of us, this is a day white and black activists showed we could unite and beat the lynch mob that killed our men. And Though I never say this often, I must say, we want to thank the prosecutors. Yeah! Yeah. Thanks for this family. Tomorrow, in all our joy today, there will be an empty chair at Wanda's table. Ahmed would not be at Thanksgiving tomorrow. But she can look at that chair. And say to Ahmed, I fought a good fight. Yes. And I got you some justice. We can't fill that chair for you, Wadman. But we can say that you were mother above all mothers. You fought for your son. And Marcus, you fought for your son. Even though it'll be a somber, a sober and solemn Thanksgiving. You can thank God you didn't let your boy down. Come on. Come on, man. Thank you.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for this month's extended conversation on media and culture, I'm joined by journalist John Jeter, former Foreign Bureau Chief for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. He joins us again from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks for having me, Esther. Well, I feel like I've lived through a in the historic week here, we've seen the conviction of all three men for the murder of Ahmad Aubrey near Brunswick, Georgia last year. And that conviction felt for me like a, a bookend for last year's massive uprising against racism after the murder of George Floyd. And Aubrey's murder, you remember, was actually the first of all the cases that drew the most national attention last February when he was shot to death while jogging near his home in Brunswick, Georgia. And the convictions in his case came on the heels of the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse in the killing of two Black Lives Matter protesters in Kenosha last year, and the judgment against white supremacist organizers of the 2017 deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. So with all of these court verdicts coming within a week, and then on Thanksgiving, or what some people call misgiving, the the holiday weekend, I know that we definitely, on the DC station in Pacifica and also the New York station, highlighted the voices of, of Native Americans speaking out at what they call the National Day of Mourning. And just hearing their comments in terms of the actual founding of this country, the impact of Native people. It's just been a a real, I think, reality check for a lot of people, you know, living through this era where so-called critical race theory is being banned or debated and made illegal in places. And we know we've, we've discussed so much that, you know, it's really kind of the banning of actual history. But anyway, I wanted to get your thoughts. I know that these issues are resonating worldwide. Yeah, Ahmad Arbery verdict aside, uh, it's been a very deflating year. How, how did uh, Zora Neale Hurston say it? Some years ask questions, others answer. It feels like we've been getting a lot of answers in 2021, and very few of them have been good. I'm very, I was very heartened by the Ahmad Arbery verdict. But the truth of the matter is that I believe we're seeing an escalation of violence, racist violence by whites, you know, in a country you know, obviously grounded in the genocide of indigenous peoples, built upon that funeral pier of dead bodies. And I I feel that we're seeing an escalation because there's a feeling, I think, an abiding feeling, a prevalent feeling throughout the nation and really around the world that the United States is on its last legs. And I think there's some evidence for that, that economically and, and even politically, we're entering a very real crisis. And so it seems like there is this escalation of violence and the the one saving grace, which we should be thankful for, especially African-Americans, but all people of conscience, is the technology. The technology makes it more difficult, though obviously not impossible, for the reactionary forces to continue this sort of undefeated streak. They can't sort of remain invincible in courts of justice because the technology gives us the proof right before our eyes. And even though, of course, you know, it doesn't always end in a just verdict, but it helps a lot and it hurts the reactionaries in trying to conceal their crime. So it's, yeah, it's a very deflating 
year it has been. I, I fear that 2022 won't be much better, particularly as we head toward the midterms and uh, then, of course, the presidential elections. But um, we're just going to have to sort of like exhale and get ready for the new year. Well, when you talk about the midterms, you have to talk about the fact that what's happening here has been described as a gerrymandering apocalypse. You have several states making major attempts to not only suppress the vote, but to gerrymander the the black vote, the the vote of the Latinx population into kind of irrelevance. So they either pack the votes all together into one district or they dilute the votes. I was struck by a meeting that was held recently in Galveston, Texas, where basically the this commission or county commission voted in a way that would eliminate the one black like county commissioner <laughs> and eliminate the the one single person of color representing an area where the black and brown population is growing. To all the members of the commission's court, yes. we are not going to go quietly in the no. night. We are going to rage, rage, rage. Until justice is done to us. Okay, hearing no more discussion on action item three, we have a motion to second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? No. Motion passes three to one with one absent. Commissioner's court is adjourned at 255. So that's emblematic of what's really happening all around the country. Well, staying here at home, uh, I wanted to draw your attention to a journalism matter was, that was brought to my attention by a former editor of the Howard newspaper called The Hilltop. And apparently, I guess you know about the, the victory of the students there in terms of protesting for going on for five weeks. They finally had a resolution to their takeover of the Blackburn Center uh, to get some answers about the poor quality of housing there and and the the amount of housing available to students. Well, anyway, it seems like the advisor to the student paper had been basically censoring the newspaper under pressure, perhaps from the Howard's president, and also insisting that the articles be approved. And this is definitely against all the tenets of, you know, student journalism. So I'll read from this release from the Student Press Law Center. It said the Student Press Law Center stands in support of the student journalists with the Hilltop at Howard. We are deeply concerned about the unusual and harmful comments and steps taken by the Hilltop staff advisor to restrict student journalists covering campus protests. Founded in 1924, the Hilltop describes itself as the nation's oldest black collegiate newspaper, According to the Hilltop statement published November 2nd, 2021, student journalists are being forced to send all breaking news stories to their advisor, Keith L. Alexander, for editing before publication. On several occasions, the Hilltop staff say their advisor has forced the editing or removal of stories related to the ongoing Blackburn takeover protests about the condition of Howard University's student housing. And, and then I hear from 
former editor of the Hilltop that even with the protests being over now, the same advisor is uh, trying to get the editor of the paper fired. The uh, advisor is Keith Alexander, who works for our former uh, employer, the Washington Post. So this is very concerning and we need to, you know, definitely include this on today's, uh, uh, this month's media and culture segment. Well, it's, it's very emblematic of, of the quality of black journalists today. Uh, and I don't, I don't uh, have any compunction about saying that, you know, the journalist of conscience, and I'll say this as well, you and I were, I think, journalists of conscience, are still journalists of conscience, but what's left behind in most of the major newspapers, including the Post, are these journalists who are just parrots for white supremacy. And if this is true, what's being alleged about Keith Alexander, who I never met, but I remember uh, hearing about him in the newsroom. If this is true, he should be fired. He should be ashamed of himself. We should bring all of our resources to bear uh, to shame him. This is ridiculous. This is not journalism. Um, and, and that's so emblematic of where we find ourselves now, where we have all of these institutions which don't perform the functions that democracy requires to work well. Right. We don't have journalism that actually asks questions and publishes the truth. Right. And we can see that even as, uh, with, with, with the, the prosecution and the persecution of Julian Assange. And for, you know, Keith Alexander and other black journalists, and I won't go into all the names, but, you know, you, you know, as well as I do, who many of them are um, for, for journalism to work. We need these black journalists to stop parroting white supremacy. Right. To perform the tasks that black journalists have always performed in the American newsrooms, which is to press for the truth, to press for our story to be told. He's doing just the opposite. It's shameful. Right. So I received a letter from a a former editor-in-chief of the paper in in 78-79, a well-respected social justice attorney here in the city, uh, Bridget Roussan. And she says that uh, she gives much appreciation to uh, Pearl Stewart and Roger Glass, who supported current editor-in-chief Ashley Fields at a recent meeting of the Hilltop Policy Board, and that's in quotes, Hilltop Policy Board, where a despicable attempt was made to remove her from her position. And she she asked for support for this editor-in-chief, Ashley Fields, uh, against efforts spearheaded by Alexander, who tried to secure a vote to remove her from her position. So uh, we'll, we'll definitely have to keep, uh, as you said, keep a watch on this. And is there anything that we can do as people not in college right, anymore, right. but certainly in, in the field of journalism to support student journalists who are trying to be fearless and, and to speak truth to power in a situation where they are vulnerable as students, you know, in, in these types of institutions. I think also it speaks to the very mixed bag that, that has historically been our historically black colleges and universities. I, I'm a proud graduate of Florida A&M, but at the same time, you know, I think we have to really sort of understand the role that these historically black colleges have, have, have played in widening the class divide uh, within the black community in Howard, of course, where Amiri Baraka, uh, the former Leroy Jones, famously dropped out of uh, Howard. Uh, Howard is sort of infamous uh, within certain black circles, certain black intellectual circles for its, uh, how how should we say, equivocation or moderation uh, when it comes to uh, racial issues and pursuing black agendas. 
I am a fierce advocate for historically black colleges and universities. I think they're necessary, but there's some a real conversation, a real dialogue we need to have about their role in in uh, in helping to suppress black voices, black speech, black thought in the service of black communities. Right. So I want to make a hard pivot to coverage of news outside the United States. And a couple of weeks ago, I was fortunate to have a on-the-ground report from Ethiopia uh, that really shed light on what's really happening there versus the very poor coverage that we're getting here. I wouldn't say it's not. It's not. It's worse than poor. Yeah. They, these are. Uh, this is. This is basically State Department propaganda. So, so we basically, we have a, a situation where the, the sovereign elected government of Ethiopia is being challenged by a terrorist group within its own borders. And the United States is acting as if they're not really telling the truth about their support for the this terrorist group, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. Is that what it is? Right. And also the role of Egypt in destabilizing Egypt, Ethiopia. I don't know. As a former foreign correspondent, and I just want to get your... <clears throat> take on the coverage that you've seen and versus the reality that you know? Well, I'll try to be succinct. You, One thing I discovered as a foreign correspondent, I, I had a hint of this uh, as a reporter stateside, but when I went abroad, I really saw it up close and it was it's a sharp delineation. You, you can't have any idea what's actually going on in the country without going there yourself, right? And And I discovered that going to Venezuela when Hugo Chavez was president and heard all these sort of stories, read all these stories in the Washington Post. I went to cover uh, for someone. It was nothing like what I thought. And and in particular, uh, the support of Hugo Chavez by particularly the black population of Venezuela was just like nothing I've ever seen. It it, it surpassed even what uh, Nelson Mandela's support by blacks in South Africa uh, when he was president. And so... Uh, the reporting on Africa is worse than any other any other place. I do believe, right? Maybe China now rivals it because China is seen as our as the United States rival. But you can't understand Africa by reading the, the newspapers, by watching the BBC or the other media. You just have no understanding of the issues that are going on there or the people who populate, you know, the, the original continent. Uh, and so, this is no surprise at all that there's this mischaracterization of the civil conflict in Ethiopia. Uh, just as there is, uh, there's, there's almost no reporting about Africa and its militarization of Africa, its creation of terroristic threats that did not previously exist, right? Over the last 20 years, since September 11, we've had this militarization of Africa, and they've created, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but I believe there are like now a thousand uh, 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 terroristic threats in 2020, and uh, 20 years ago, there were none. One or two. Mozambique is seeing a terrorist threat in its northwest. Mozambique had no terrorism going back to the end of its civil war 30 years ago. So we don't know anything really about Africa until we go there. And I, I say that even about myself. I read the newspapers and sometimes I can talk to my friends about what's going on there and they'll tell me and it's a very different story than what's described to me. Uh, Angola, someone was just telling me uh, recently is undergoing a real anti-corruption struggle right now. I've not seen any reporting on that in uh, the United States. And so it's really, uh, again, it, it diminishes our democracy and our understanding of the world. And the context 
uh, it removes, and this is true of everything really, right? Even the Rittenhouse case and, and, and all these sort of stories, we remove context rather than add context in our media. And that's true of our foreign reporting more than any other issue, any other topic. Wow. So John, these are some of the voices from a demonstration of at least 20,000 Ethiopians and those in solidarity with them here in DC on Sunday, November 21st. And this rally received little to no media coverage. Again, that was from the November 21st rally here in D.C., ignored by corporate media. And that's part of what we're talking about in terms of the coverage and the narratives that are spun that are ultimately false because they exclude and they erase. Well, we don't have much time yet left to do a little kind of culture uh, segment. Uh, I wanted to mention to you the Squid Game. And uh, this is a series on Netflix. And I wanted to mention it because it reminds me of a lot. The theme of it reminds me a lot of the South Korea movie Parasite, which won so many uh, Oscars last year, made Oscars history in, in the sense that I believe that this is another piece coming from South Korea that really does more than I've seen in a lot of movies that just critique capitalism and critique the particular predicament that people are in, uh, kind of like the, the the unseen or unspoken misery that people can find themselves in, trying to keep up with the keep up with the rat race, uh, finding ourselves in debt and in in precarious situations. The kind of widening of the what they call the precariat that so many of us live in, right? So the the premise of it is that people who are in debt, facing various financial problems, are offered the opportunity to go play a game. And if they win that game, they could win a large sum of money to wipe out all their debts. But this isn't just like, you know, those of us who like play the lottery or whatever, right? This is like, it turns out to be a very dangerous game. I mean, obviously, this is really taking it to, uh, almost surreal extent to a very surreal place, (laughs) but still sometimes we need, uh, this type of dystopia in a way to, to make us realize how much of our, our real lives are, are in a dystopia. (laughs) I I, I hope maybe, maybe next time we can talk at length about movies because it's been a subject that I've been, I I love movies. I've always been a, a, a cinephile really most of my life. And, I've noticed, especially recently, the difference between the rest of the world and their cinematic production and the United States, the roles that our movies play, which are very romanticized and almost escapist, while as the rest of the world, particularly you'll see like in Turkey and Iran, they're making some of the best movies these days. But the United States just sort of, in our feature films at least, we still make some really good documentaries, but in our feature films, they're just, it's this dross. Well, let me just play this trailer as we wind up. You all have debts that you can't pay off. If you do not wish to participate, then please let us know at this time. 
playing red light, green light. Those who win all six games will receive a handsome cash prize. Well, uh, that, that'll do it for our segment uh, this week, uh, for this month. But uh, we have a little homework for ourselves, uh, John. We have to remember uh, to support the uh, current editor-in-chief at the Hilltop, Ashley Fields, and to bring whatever influence we have as journalists, veteran journalists, to let people know that student journalists have rights. And not only that... This is their training ground to be able to speak truth to power. And if they can't do it in school, then then they're going to be less likely to be the ones to to stand up and speak truth to power as professionals. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, I've been speaking to our media critic and our our friend of the show, John Jeter, former foreign bureau chief for the Washington Post, and the author of Flat Broke in the Free Market. How Globalization Fleece Working People. Thank you for joining me today, John. Always a pleasure, Esther. we are in a time of indigenous resurgence with things happening on so many different fronts. I hear a lot of people talking about reconciliation the last couple of years. Reconciliation to me means when you try to repair an existing relationship, like when you go to marriage counseling to try to work things out. I don't feel like we have ever had enough of a good relationship with settlers to think that something that has been so ugly can be reconciled or repaired. For example, can the damage done by residential schools ever actually be repaired? You know, not just on Orange Shirt Day, but every day. How can we stop thinking and mourning for the indigenous children in Canada and the U.S. that were forced into internment camps called Indian residential schools or Indian boarding schools. And many people say they should not even be called schools because of what happened there. Schools shouldn't have mass graves. Hundreds of these schools were run for decades by governments and missionaries that made it their mission to kill the Indian to save the child, all too often abusing or killing the child in the process. Thousands of the children died at these institutions from tuberculosis, from medical experiments, including starvation experiments, from abuse, and from broken hearts. All of them were scarred. In Canada, some of the school grounds have been searched this year, finally. 
and the remains of more than 7,000 children have already been found. More than 7,000 children buried in unmarked graves. How can that be reconciled? How can you possibly make amends to the indigenous communities that lost their children? And there are many more places left to search. The residential school survivors have long said that there were mass graves at the residential schools, but the government took no action. Here in the United States, the Interior Department has now said that they are going to try to find out how many children lie in graves at boarding schools here. And every child they find and every child whose remains have already been found need to be brought back to their families and tribal communities. We cannot rest until this happens. Bring the children home. <laughs> Residential schools are not just a thing of the past. Indigenous children continue to be put into residential schools in some parts of Latin America, often run by missionaries. Adivasi tribal children in India are forced to attend residential schools where they too are stripped of their family and cultural ties. The residential schools in the U.S. and Canada may be closed now, but our indigenous children are now disproportionately placed into foster care. Evangelicals and right-wing organizations like the Goldwater Institute have been leading the charge to get rid of the Indian Child Welfare Act that is the only thing protecting our children from being wholesale adopted out of their own communities. These groups want to push us back to the 1960s when at least a third of Native children were stolen from their families and put into white homes, losing their tribal connections and cultures. A third of all Native children stolen from their families. How can that be reconciled? We do not need empty words of reconciliation or apologies, and we don't need guilt either. It's too late for that. What we need is land back and reparations. And when I say land back, I mean land back. Give the land back to indigenous people. What we need is a brand new way of thinking and being able to move properly into the future. That means native self-determination, land back, decolonization, and black liberation as we move forward. Land back is a popular hashtag on social media right now, but you know what? It's not a new concept that someone recently invented. Our ancestors always taught us to demand the return of our lands. The land and water are in our blood and in our bones. They are part of our bodies, and we have never forgotten that, and we will never forget that. As a starting point, 
return the national parks that are held by the federal government and return the lands that are held by the state to the native nations so the indigenous people can be free to caretake the land properly. And all these months into the Biden administration, here we are in November, Mashpee has not had their land into trust issues resolved by the Interior Department yet. So we say to President Biden, resolve Mashpee's land trust issues and respect the sovereignty of all nations. Year after year, we stand on this hill and demand an end to the colonial borders. We demand that ICE be abolished and that Customs yes. and Border Patrol stop detaining undocumented migrants. Yes. Yes. We think not only of the Native nations whose homelands have been divided by the arbitrary settler colonial border, but also of the many thousands of indigenous people impacted by the U.S. policies that have led them to, to flee their home countries in Mexico, El Salvador, Honduras, and elsewhere. And we think of our Haitian and many other relatives who have been attacked and rounded up and abused by border control. As always, we say, no one is illegal on stolen land. We will also be talking again about missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two spirits. Yeah. You know, Biden says he cares about missing and murdered indigenous women. But if that's the case, why will he not shut down pipelines and turn his back on the energy industry? It is well known that the man camps that these pipelines and other projects bring with them are a major factor yes. in missing and murdered indigenous yes. women. Yes. Yet his administration does nothing to stop these projects. Whether the politicians are Republican or Democrat, conservatives or liberals, they uphold colonial rule and work hand in glove with energy corporations. They engage in intense, heavily militarized police repression against pipeline resistors. This police repression is bought and paid for by the energy corporations and the governments that work hand in glove with them. Divest from all these corporations and the banks that are funding these projects. Many of you may have heard of line three in Minnesota. And some of you even went out there to join the front lines. Raise your hand if you were someone who was out there. Okay. Showing up in solidarity like that is so important. Hundreds of water protectors are currently facing criminal charges in Minnesota for standing in defense of the water, the climate, and the treaty rights of the Anishinaabeg people. They put their bodies on the line to stop Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline, a massive tar sands project that threatens Minnesota's lakes, 
rivers, aquifers, and wild rice beds. Police forces funded by Enbridge responded to this massive movement with surveillance, rubber bullets, harassment, pain compliance, and trumped up charges, including felony charges. In this time of climate catastrophe, governments must listen to water protectors instead of criminalizing and prosecuting them. Even though the oil is now flowing through line three, the fight is not over. And please, do what you can to support this struggle and all those who were arrested. You may not have heard about line five, which is opposed by all the tribes in Michigan. Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline transports 22 million gallons of crude oil and natural gas liquids from Superior, Wisconsin, through Michigan's Upper Peninsula, under the Straits of Mackinac and down to refineries in Sarnia, Ontario. Originally built in 1953, Line 5 has deteriorated over the course of the last several decades and poses catastrophic risks to the tribal lands, and to the Great Lakes themselves. You also may not have heard about Thacker Pass in Nevada, where the Paiute, Shoshone, and others are trying to stop a lithium mine that is situated on land where an 1865 massacre took place. The construction is scheduled to begin early next year at what would be the largest lithium mine in the U.S. and the biggest open pit lithium mine in the world. Wow. For what? For cell phones so that Elon Musk can make electric cars? We raise our voices today in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en struggle in so-called British Columbia to stop the coastal gasoline project from going, from going through their lands. Last week, there was an unprecedented cascade of climate events in the province with <coughs> extreme flooding, mudslides, and communities cut off from food deliveries. Despite this, the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, made it a priority to move in and arrest unarmed Wet'suwet'en elders, leaders, and other land defenders, including Haudenosaunee, as well as journalists who are at blockades on unceded lands that are not even covered by a treaty in Canada. But so it's strong, we stand with them. On Vancouver Island, more than a thousand people have been arrested for trying to defend the old growth trees there at Ferry Creek. Sepulpank Tiny House Warriors continue their fierce resistance to Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline, and they continue to be harassed and sometimes arrested by the RCMP. In Eastern Canada, violent settlers and the Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans continue to harass Mi'kmaq fishers who are exercising their right to trap lobsters in their ancestral waters. U.S. intervention and multinational corporations continue to wreak havoc in many countries. Indigenous people are being displaced and killed in Colombia, Mexico, and other countries for trying to stop mining and megadam projects. In Bolivia, indigenous people are forced 
to continue to resist the efforts of the United States to overthrow their government and reinstall an anti-indigenous puppet government. So I want to say today that individual actions are not going to save us when corporations and the U.S. military account for 70% of the world's pollution. Promoting a narrative of individual responsibility is not going to save us. Recycling and carbon offsets are not going to save us. Hoping that capitalism will get kinder will definitely not save us. The Green New Deal is not going to save us. Only by listening to indigenous people and dismantling the systems that allowed climate collapse to be able to save the planet. Indigenous peoples have always been caretakers of the land, water, and the life therein, despite intense efforts of settler governments to stop us from doing so. And for generations, our people have been warning about climate crisis. It's not too late to achieve some climate justice on this planet, but Indigenous voices must be acknowledged and centered. One of many ways that people are working to center Indigenous voices is through education and legislation. We have been successful in getting Indigenous People's Day resolutions passed in many cities and towns, including Boston this past fall. Here in Massachusetts, we want you to know that we have a Massachusetts Indigenous legislative agenda that is supporting five bills a bill to ban the use of native mascots in public schools. A bill to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day statewide instead of Columbus Day. A bill to provide for native-centered curriculum in all of the public schools in the state K-12. A bill to improve educational outcomes for Native students, and last but not least, a bill to protect sacred Native heritage. And there's a lot you can do to get those bills out of committee, so please go to maindigenousagenda.org for more information about these bills and how you can help us out. I'm going to end by returning to the concept of land back. That's something on the lips of many Indigenous people. Treaties need to be honored. Lands, including the sacred Black Hills and many more, need to be returned. A proposal, a starting place for the decolonization of our lands and a way to address climate collapse is first, ensure that no projects can go through any indigenous nation's land without free, prior, and authentic informed consent. All of the land that is currently being mismanaged by all settler governments, such as the national parks or the Amazon rainforest, and let indigenous nations manage that land. That would mean the restoration of millions of acres of our lands to us. It would also mean the end of the desecration of our sacred sites, such as the Black Hills or Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Third, 
cancel the leases, the pipelines, the mining, and the corporate contracts and start over. Finally, since we all live here on this planet together, and since it is the only planet that we have, everyone needs to support and listen to indigenous peoples all over the world who are on the front lines of dealing with climate change. And I don't want anyone who hears this to give up despite how hard this past year may have been. Our ancestors are behind us every step of the way. We can fight for climate justice. We can do our best to mask up and reduce the spread of this epidemic. We can end settler colonialism. We can reclaim our lands. We are not vanishing. We are not conquered. We are stronger than ever. That was Matalman Monroe, co-leader of the United Indians of New England, speaking at the National Day of Mourning held in Plymouth, Massachusetts on November 25th, 2021. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, and thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon.com at On the Ground Show. You can also follow me on Instagram at Esther underscore Averum. Our podcast is On the Ground with Esther Averum, and that's available on all your podcast platforms. The music we play this hour included By Any Beat Necessary, Malcolm X Tribute by DJ Ajamu, Cash in Your Face by Stevie Wonder, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Well, it's the end of the year my on the ground family. And if you've enjoyed the podcast all this year and you have $33 to spare, you can become a new member at patreon.com. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show is my Patreon page. And that annual option allows you to give all at once. You don't have to worry about your checking account or your car getting jacked up with some overages on a monthly basis just for $3. So with just that little, you could become a new member and really help me to build the show. It's an honor. It's a labor of love to do the show. And I would like to continue doing it and doing it as best I can. So if you can go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show and become a member during our year end drive. I would really appreciate it. You can also go to the website on the ground show.org to see all ways you can give, including PayPal, a check or however way you want to give. But Patreon is the number one way because I can send you a email automatically when the show posts and you'll get extra bonus content there as well. Okay. So please don't forget this is what, um, 
Giving Tuesday and all that stuff, Cyber Week and all that. So if you are giving or in that giving mode and you can spare anything to support on the ground, I certainly would appreciate it. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. All right. Peace.